Welcome to This Week in California Education, produced by EdSource Radio. I'm Louis Friedberg, Executive Director of EdSource, and joining me is John Fensterwald, Editor-at-Large. Welcome, John. Great to be here, Louis. Well, things are heating up in Sacramento. The legislature has a couple more weeks to decide on some bills before they go to the governor. And uh, one bill I know you've been looking at, John, is Assembly Bill 1321, which right. on the face of it seems like a pretty simple bill. It just requires school districts to report in more detail how they're spending money from the state. So yeah. so what's the issue there? Let me just correct you on one thing. It's before they take a month's vacation, not before. <laughs> that's, uh, the, that's the crisis here. They got to go on vacation in, in July, so... The other, each has to vote on the other house's bills by then. That's the time pressure. Okay. Well, they deserve a vacation for a few weeks, no? Some would agree. Okay. <laughs> well, tell us about this bill then. So 1321 by Assemblywoman Shirley Weber, and it's co-sponsored by the Education Trust West and Children Now, would require that the local control funding formula be broken down so that every school is accounted for. How much money every school spends under the local control funding formula is accounted for. And this is not required under the law right now. So why would there be any opposition to this? It already passed the assembly overwhelmingly. What was the vote there? 77 to zero. Isn't that very unusual to have total unanimity? Well, I would say it sends a signal to the governor, perhaps, that the law needs to have more transparency in accounting for the money, yes. The local control funding formula yeah, and legislation. Yes, and the idea is that, uh, you know, that... Local control funding formula allocates money for low-income kids and English learners, homeless kids, and foster children. And so the proponents of the bill say it's really hard to track that money, and it's really important to do it at the school level because that's, in fact, where parents look for spending. They want to know how much is spent at their school. And so it's really hard to do that right now. And the advocacy groups, in fact, say it's impossible in some districts' cases to know whether the money is actually being spent on these children. So this is one way that they want to approach that. So why would there be opposition to this? Well, there are two reasons, really, depending which one you like more. One is the slippery slope argument, which is to say under the old system, everything was regulated and you had to spend money, very clear purposes, and that this would be the first step if, if all schools are required to detail their spending under standardized sort of methods. The legislature may be tempted to re-regulate what, in fact, was abolished under the local control funding formula. You mean going back to that old categorical fund right. system where you had dozens of programs and telling school districts how they had to spend that money. Exactly. That's the system that everyone agrees we don't want to go back to. And so the opponents, which includes basically school district administrators and the school boards association, I expect, will weigh in, and probably the governor, too, will say this is just the first step towards that, and that is antithetical to local control in which local districts decide on their own how to spend the money. But do you expect there'll be more opposition in the Senate than in the Assembly? Or do you think that it'll go through the, the Senate as well? Well, I think that there wasn't much opposition in the Assembly. And so now the governor, of course, is, is the one who doesn't like this idea. The governor believes that, uh, that in fact, under local control, district school boards should have a lot of flexibility and that the focus should be on results, not how you spend the dollars. That's the wrong focus, he says, and, and so do the districts. So I expect the governor and the Department of Finance will weigh in here 
strongly in, in the Senate. And so we'll see what happens. It's always possible that he may veto it because this is his law. He feels strongly that it was written the way he liked it and that you have to give it more time to bring results and that it's too soon, he says, he will say, I assume, to change it. Okay, well, last question on this. Just let's assume that the Senate also passes this. Right. This, and by an overwhelming margin. Is it possible that you'll have a situation where the legislature could actually overturn a governor's veto? Well, I'm not sure that's actually happened. It hasn't happened under Governor Brown's watch, and I doubt it will. I think rather than veto it, it's a signal that they're sending, if in fact it passes overwhelmingly, that when the governor leaves, there may be some changes to the law. And this is a sort of a shot over the bow, so to speak. Okay, well, that's going to be very interesting, but all this will become clearer in the next couple of weeks. And I'll, we'll let you know. <laughs> okay, good. Shifting for a moment to higher education. As uh, John, you will recall, uh, the Public Policy Institute of California has issued various reports over the last several years predicting that there will be a shortage of college graduates to meet the needs of California's expanding economy. About a million, I believe, is the figure. Yeah. Huge number. A new PPIC report that came out this week says that the state should focus on three relatively untapped areas in the state to increase its college graduate. Two in Southern California, the Inland Empire and L.A. County, and also the San Joaquin Valley. We did speak with Hans Johnson, who's a senior fellow at PPIC and was the lead author on this report, and asked him why the report settled on these three areas. There are several reasons to focus on these regions. First of all, it's just the size. These are very large regions. Uh, Los Angeles County is home to almost 10 million people. The Inland Empire and the San Joaquin Valley each are home to more than 4 million people. They are home to over half of the uh, high school diplomas awarded every year in California. And um, importantly, they are also home to a very diverse population. Latinos will be uh, making up a majority of the population in each one of those regions in the not-too-distant future. Uh, the number of high school students from those regions who come from low-income families is, is quite high. So that the populations that we really want to and need to reach to ensure that higher education continues to serve as a ladder of economic mobility are abundant in those regions. So one of the things we did in this report is we looked at this pipeline, uh, starting all the way back from ninth grade and then continuing all the way through earning a bachelor's degree. And statewide, what we found is that of every 1,000 ninth graders, only 305 will end up earning a bachelor's degree, uh, and 225 will end up earning a bachelor's degree from either UC or CSU. That was Hans Johnson from PPIC. His report also found that students' proximity or their location near a four-year university mattered and that many low-income students are less likely to attend a four-year university if it's not near where they live. So in the Inland Empire, again, a region that is home to more than four million people, there's only one California State University campus. In the San Joaquin Valley, a region of similar size, there are actually three although the San Joaquin Valley's population is, is more dispersed geographically, so the distances to some of those campuses can be large. And we know um, and found in doing this study that it's true in these regions as well, that most students, when they go to college, they go to a college that's not far from their home, 
two-thirds of students, for example, at California State University campuses come from the county that that campus is located in or, or an adjacent county. So, so distance matters, uh, and living closer to a four-year college or university makes it more likely that you're going to be able to go there uh, for all kinds of obvious reasons. Hans Johnson also touched on the issue that sometimes you have students who are identified as being college-ready by the time they graduate from high school, but then when they get to college, they have to take a proficiency exam of some kind and then are placed in remedial classes, which then actually can be a barrier counterintuitively to students completing or reaching their college goals. That transition from high school to college is, is so fraught with opportunities, but also problems. Um, when we look at California's high school graduates, and it's true in every one of these regions, and it's true for every single race and ethnic group in, in these regions, the share of those high school graduates that are completing the college preparatory requirements of UC and CSU, which are known, of course, as the A through G courses, has been increasing pretty, pretty strongly. And that's good news. So by that measure, we would say more and more students are actually ready and qualified for college because they're taking these required courses. Other measures show similar patterns when we look at the number of students taking advanced placement exams in California and passing those exams. Even if we restrict it to calculus, we see increasing shares of students taking and passing those exams and doing well. And those advanced placement courses and exams, of course, are uh, college-level material. So that's some good news. The placement policies with respect to whether students are identified as ready for college-level work is more problematic, um, I would say. And there have been a lot of reforms that are going on right now, both at the California State University and even more importantly at the California Community Colleges, where the vast majority of students are placed in remediation and relatively few actually end up successfully making it out of remediation and passing college-level courses. That was Hans Johnson, director of the Higher Education Center at PPIC. John, one of the things that struck me about his comments about these three regions that they say are potentially a rich resource for more college graduates is that there are not that many colleges in that area. So what was their thinking about how you would deal with that issue? I think the report acknowledges that the state's probably not going to build another CSU or UC campus, but there are other things that it could do, such as satellite campuses or perhaps taking courses at a community college that are qualified for university credit. Or in fact, in some cases, there are some community colleges that now offer four-year degrees if it's an area that's not covered by a CSU or UC. Okay, well, that's very interesting. And I think one of the things that this report underscores is that California is a big place, very diverse, and that in thinking about policies, we shouldn't be coming up with blanket policies for the whole state, but really we should be tailoring them to the circumstances and the needs and the conditions in each region of the state. Yeah, it was a really interesting regional look at uh, one way of approaching the shortage of college grads. Speaking of college readiness, one of the reasons that people don't get into college is that they have struggling with math. But let's back up and start with middle school. We have here Carolyn Jones, our reporter. Carolyn, you wrote a really interesting story in EdSource about some summer programs that are geared to kids who have not done very well and even 
try to make them love math if that's possible. Tell me what you found. Some kids sort of fall off the math bandwagon as early as kindergarten and are behind from age five and never do quite catch up. And then by the time they get to high school or middle school, it's a real problem. And so there's all these efforts to get these kids not only caught up, but then a little bit ahead and to get them to sort of change their attitude about math. A lot of times it's just a mental block. And so I visited a program out in Pittsburgh Unified School District, a summer, a free summer program for five weeks, intensive math. These kids do math for five or six hours a day, every day, and it's voluntary. <laughs> so these kids are volunteering to spend their summer doing a subject they don't like very much. And it's phenomenally successful. What's the secret there? What, what do they do? There's some of the techniques that, in fact, turn people's mindset around on math. One thing that they were doing there that really seemed to work is they just broke math down into the very basic fundamentals, like literally addition. And the teacher would just start with that, and the kids would do well on those tests, and that kind of boosted their confidence. Then he would sort of very gradually take them up to grade-level math. And if they got stuck on something, he would send them out of the classroom with a tutor and work one-on-one -on -one with the tutor until they understood it and got it right, no matter how long it took, and then send them back in the classroom and keep testing them. And then finally, after a couple of weeks, all the kids, or almost all of them, were performing at grade level or above. Carolyn, did the District, this is in Pittsburgh Unified, which is kind of in the, is that in Contra Costa County? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Eastern Contra Costa Eastern County. Eastern Contra Costa County. Why did they do this program? Why did they think this was so important? Well, they had a lot of kids lagging in math. And actually, it's not unusual. I think statewide, 38% of California, I think, fourth graders are below the standard it's, it's pretty phenomenal across the entire state. So Pittsburgh was no different than a lot of other districts. Below the standard on the Smarter Balance test. Yes, yes. And so they just decided, you know, let's, they've been doing that for about 17 years and oh, had so. huge success with it. And other districts are doing similar things. If not during the summer, then during the school year, just really intensive one-on-one -on -one or very small groups working with students. LA Unified has a thing where they Kids who are struggling in math actually take two math classes a day. Instead of an elective, they'll just take two math classes. Oakland Unified. That's during the school year. Yes, mm -hmm. at middle schools and high schools. And Oakland Unified is doing really interesting things, too, with online math software for kids. I think, you know, a quarter of the kids in Oakland Unified are using this software. So districts are trying all sorts of things to really get kids at that middle school level before they start high school and just become hopelessly lost. And just to clarify, were there other summer programs along these lines? Yeah, there's a lot of nonprofits that um, also run summer programs for kids who are struggling in math, free ones. And a lot of times, you know, the real issue is trying to get kids to show up <laughs> who wants to take math in summer. So they throw in things like field trips to amusement parks, and then they'll kind of work in math, like they'll work out you know, the physics of a roller coaster and that kind of thing. This program in Pittsburgh takes kids on college tours or they get to spend time, you know, there's a lot of carrots built in. This sounds like this could be something that could benefit not only kids who are struggling with math, but kids in general, because I think one of the things they found is that there's a lot of anxiety around math. And instead of kids seeing math as fun, it's mm -hmm. kind of an ordeal. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, there are kids at all math levels in these programs. It's struggling kids really benefit from it, but there are advanced kids, too, who just kind of want to stay fresh over the summer. And, you know, as, as one of the math teachers said, you know, Curry doesn't just show up and throw a three-pointer. He's done it a thousand times, and he knows that ball's going to go in the hoop even before he sees it. And he said, math is like that, too. If you do it over and over and over again, it just gets easier. 
and more fun. Math muscles, that's an interesting concept. Yeah, yeah. And there is this whole issue of summer learning loss. And I imagine with something like math, then unless you do it constantly, you're going to lose a lot of that. Yeah, particularly if you don't like math to begin with. It's not something that your brain is automatically going to be going to in the middle of summer vacation, whereas a lot of kids might read over the summer or, you know, focus on subjects they do like. And math anxiety, I guess, is pretty much the same thing as having a mental block against math. It's just sort of two sides of the same coin. So, yeah, it affects a lot of kids. So anything to kind of get them out of that pattern. So under the old financing system of the state, you know, state determined whether or not to fund summer programs. And then on the recession, they stopped doing that. But now under a local control funding formula, districts have the, the ability, the latitude to do this if they think it's important. Do you get a sense that districts are appreciating the value of summer programs and might, in oh, fact, yeah. put more resources into it? Oh, yeah. Well, just because they've been so successful. I mean, this one in Pittsburgh, I mean, there's a waiting list. I think they take, you know, 100 or 200 kids or something, and then there's another 100 or 200 who didn't get in. So there's a huge demand for it. And I think because it's been successful to bring these kids' test scores up, and change their whole mindset about math and academics generally, and changes their outlook on school even. I think districts are very eager to get these things up and running. Well, thank you, Carolyn. I, I guess after reading your report and about all these kids doing math this summer, I'm feeling like a sloth. But thanks for bringing us this, this report. So, Lewis, we've ended another week, and it's time for you to give us a prediction. Well, John, this week, the state... Attorney General's Office, Attorney General Becerra, did join with 17 other states in filing a suit against the Department of Education and uh, our Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos. They're alleging or complaining that the Trump administration wants to overturn some rules that would allow students who had attended for-profit colleges that did not yield results for these students that means that they didn't graduate, they didn't get jobs, that they would have their student loans be forgiven. And uh, these 18 states, including California, have said that, no, they should keep the rules in place. And uh, actually, this is the first official legal action of California against any Trump administration education policies. Just the first, huh? And that's what my prediction is, that this is the first, but there's going to be quite a few more of them. And then to add to the prediction is that actually what's going to, I think it's going to be interesting and no accident that the first legal action was around higher ed issues, that I think a lot of the conflicts and a lot of these lawsuits are going to be around higher ed rather than K-12, around student loan issues, which are big around these for-profit colleges, which the Trump administration uh, wants to actually support and roll back a lot of the regulations that the Obama administration tried to impose. John, I'm going to ask you to make a prediction about the State Board of Education meeting that's coming up this coming week. Yes, Any it, predictions about what's going to happen there? It's coming up Wednesday and Thursday, and the main topic will be the Every Student Succeeds Act. The state must come up with a plan for compliance or how it's going to meet the requirements of that law, and one of which is how do you select the 5% lowest performing schools in the state that need help? You need They have to come up with some method, and I think from what I've seen, surprisingly difficult to do that. 
you can probably come up with the first, I think it's 300 schools they need to come up. These are schools that get Title I aid, federal assistance. So you can probably come up with the first 100, but then from the 100 to 300, there are many different ways you could do it, and every method has its faults. There'll be a lot of discussion, frustration, and anguish, and I'm not sure at the end of this meeting they'll be satisfied that they've got it right. But by when does the state board actually have to nail this down? They need to send that pr the plan to Washington by mid-September. Okay, so they have one more board meeting to nail this down? That's right, early September. Okay, so your prediction is a lot of discussion this week, but no final I predict decision. we'll be discussing it again in September. <laughs> okay. Well, that wraps it up for This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. For more information on these stories and other topics, go to our website at edsource.org. I'm Louis Friedberg, here with John Fensterwald. Our producer is Sarah Tan. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.